swamp and savanna that lasted years and years. Long walks through open spaces without benefit of a map that epitomized exploration in its purest form. The London papers often assumed the worst in those lengthy absences and had reported Livingston's death on several occasions, but he was never lost, just overdue. Before leaving England in August 1865 to find the source, Livingston had assured his children and friends that the journey would last an uncharacteristically brief two years. He would breach the African continent on its eastern shore, then travel west into the interior with the assurance of a man who had been there before. Livingston knew the land, knew where he was going, and knew where he would likely find the source. Two years seemed an accurate prediction. Throughout the journey, as he had done since becoming an explorer, Livingston would scrawl copious daily notes. His script had presence, big loops in his lowercase l's, no slant to his cursive, pithy phrasing, and his journal pages were sometimes flecked with blood or from single drops of sweat falling from his brow. In the past, those simple words, often written by firelight with mosquito netting draped over his head, had been published when his wanders were through. His books had become bestsellers, and the world had learned about Africa through Livingston's eyes. Before the Scots' discoveries, geographers surmised that a vast desert lay in the middle of Africa. But as Livingston travelled farther into that blank section of the map between 1841 and 1863, he saw for himself that Africa's interior was a marvellous mosaic of highlands, light woodlands, tropical rainforests, plateaus, mountain ranges, coastal wetlands, river deltas, deserts, and thick forests. Just like Egypt and the rest of northern Africa, civilizations had thrived in southern and central Africa for millennia. An estimated twenty million people inhabited the interior when Livingston first arrived. The tribes lived in villages great and small. Their mud and grass huts with a single low doorway would be clustered within a protective fence of thorn bushes or sharpened stakes. Entire families shared a hut, and entire villages worked together to cultivate the surrounding fields and, if necessary, wage war. They understood metallurgy and made spears from iron and copper. Artisans wove fine cloths, baskets, and other functional objets d'art. Beer was brewed from bananas or grain. Fish and game were plentiful. Coffee was indigenous. Communication between villages and kingdoms was accomplished through a relay of swift runners. This bush telegraph allowed information to travel quickly for thousands of miles. The common root language which Livingston quickly learned was Bantu. An amazing six hundred dialects had spun from that tongue as tribes dispersed across the continent over thousands of years. Through the insular nature of Africa's geography and the fact that people from other continents were terrified of exploring its interior, Africa's hidden civilizations had flourished. One of the primary reasons Europeans stayed away so long dated back to the 5th century BC. While attempting a counterclockwise circumnavigation of Africa, the Carthaginian explorer Hanno the Navigator dropped anchor on the west coast of Africa near the equator. He and his men went ashore to hunt game and find fresh water. Slogging into a tropical rainforest, the music of drums and bamboo flutes wafted through the jungle from some place not too far off. Hanno and his men were scared, but they stayed the course. 
Then an enormous black man attacked them. The Carthaginians were in awe of his rippling muscles, great white teeth, and full body hair. Fearing for their lives, the Carthaginians killed him. To prove to the world that such a man existed, he was skinned, then brought back to Carthage. This gorilla, as Hanno's translators called him, terrified all who saw it. That display, plus Hanno's written account of the voyage, later translated into Greek and distributed throughout the known world, established Africa's reputation as a savage land. Livingston was the man who reopened European minds toward Africa. Even more than the Arabs and Portuguese who went into Africa seeking ivory and slaves, he traversed the continent's unknown sub-Saharan region. Between 1841 and 1851, he explored the deserts, rivers, and lakes of southern Africa in a series of journeys lasting weeks and months. From 1852 to 1856, he walked from east to west across south-central Africa along the course of the Zambezi. Then, after returning from his first visit to England since 1840, he explored the Zambezi and the area to its north more thoroughly. This single expedition lasted from 1858 to 1863. Livingston didn't emerge unscathed. The continent had insinuated itself into his appearance, given him bearing and presence, set him apart from other men. The narrow face with the hound-dog eyes had become taut, furrowed, and tanned from day after day squinting into the sun. His Scottish burr had an African inflection, and his lips struggled to form English sentences after years of wrapping themselves around Bantu's many dialects. Hookworm thrived in his belly. He was chronically anemic. And, of course, there was the famous left arm, permanently crooked after a lion bit deep and shook Livingston like a rag doll. Not only did Livingston survive the mauling with a preternatural calm, but also set the bone and sutured the eleven puncture wounds himself, without anaesthetic. Later he said that his time in the lion's jaws was an epiphany. He learned a secret that made him unafraid of death. Livingston was, then, the perfect man to venture into Africa to find the source of the Nile. Unlocking Africa's greatest mystery would be a fitting career summation. Traveling via Bombay, he arrived in Zanzibar on January 28, 1866. There he purchased supplies, including the cloth and beads that functioned as currency for buying food in villages along the way and paying his porters. He also arranged for a second, crucial shipment of relief provisions to be sent overland to the village of Ujiji. Ujiji lay almost due west from Zanzibar, in the very center of Africa. It was a primary Arab slave-trading outpost on the eastern shore of Lake Tanganyika. The relief supplies, so vital to an extended expedition, would be waiting when Livingston reached Ujiji. In the event of a calamity such as theft or medical emergency, Livingston would have peace of mind, knowing that his problems would be solved, as long as he could navigate to Ujiji. Despite his sworn opposition to the slave trade, and disdain with the heathen Arabs for playing such a pivotal role, he was depending upon them to carry these vital supplies to Ujiji and store them until he arrived. The success of Livingston's entire expedition depended upon this act of trust. Livingston would lead an unlikely caravan. 
I have thirteen sepoys, ten Johanna men, nine Nasik boys, two Shupanga men, and two Waiyaus, Wakatini and Chuma, he wrote in his journal. The sepoys were Indian marines assigned to Livingston by Sir Bartle Frere, the governor of Bombay. They carried rifles instead of a porter's load and would serve as bodyguards. The Nasik boys also signed on in India. They would serve as porters. The Johanna men were from the Comoro island of the same name, and many had served with Livingston on his previous expedition. Most notable of all the men were the Waiau lad named James Chuma, who had been a slave until Livingston arranged his freedom in 1861, who could read and write English, and would begin the journey as Livingston's cook, and the Shupanga man named David Susi. Their deep loyalty to Livingston would be vital in training the newcomers in the ways of an African expedition. Those loads not carried by human beings would be lashed to an oddball menagerie of experimental pack animals, six camels, three buffalo, a calf, two mules, and four donkeys. Most important of all, there were no other Britons, Europeans, or other white men making the journey. Livingston had no peer, no confidant. He was ostensibly alone, which was as he liked it. So it was that on the 25th anniversary of Livingston's first arrival in Africa, HMS Penguin docked in Zanzibar to take him there again. Over the next few days, the supplies and animals were loaded. Then, at 10 a.m. on March 19, 1866, Livingston's birthday, Penguin sailed from Zanzibar Harbor under the command of a British officer named Lieutenant Garforth. They would steam three hundred miles south before putting ashore at the mouth of the jungle-clotted Rovuma River. From there Livingston would push inland. He believed the source of the Nile flowed into the Zambezi, and maybe even into West Africa's Congo. In Livingston's mind, fountains south of the equator thrust three great rivers from the ground. Livingston would travel west into Africa to find those fountains and find his destiny. Livingston's journal entry practically sang as the trip got underway. Now that I am on the point of starting another trip into Africa, I feel quite exhilarated, he wrote. The effect of travel on a man whose heart is in the right place is that the mind is made more self-reliant. It becomes more confident of its own resources. There is greater presence of mind. The body is soon well-knit. The muscles of the limbs grow hard as a board and seem to have no fat. The countenance is bronzed, and there is no dyspepsia. Africa is a most wonderful country for appetite, and it is only when one gloats over marrow bones or elephant's feet that indigestion is possible. No doubt much toil is involved, and fatigue of which travellers in the more temperate climes can form but a faint conception, but the sweat of one's brow is no longer a curse when one works for God. It proves a tonic to the system and is actually a blessing. No one can truly appreciate the charm of repose unless he has undergone severe exertion. On March 24, 1866, Lieutenant Garforth unloaded Livingston's men and animals at the sweltering port of Mikindani, twenty-five miles north of the swampy, hippo-infested Rovuma. Livingston planned to hire additional porters there before setting out, that evening, Livingston shook Garforth's hand, thanked him, then went ashore. The penguin then left, 
Livingston wrote simply of the last Englishmen who would see him alive. On April the 4th, 1866, the explorer marched his caravan into Africa. As if the continent was swallowing him whole, Livingston's entry into the jungle marked his disappearance from the outside world. Stanley, May 6th, 1866, Denver, Colorado, 9,200 miles to Livingston. One month later, and halfway around the world, Henry Morton Stanley unknowingly began a journey toward David Livingston. The front range of the Rocky Mountains burst with wildflowers, and the air smelled of budding green buffalo grass as Stanley stood on the banks of the South Platte River. A prairie wind, hard and cool, slapped Stanley's clean-shaven cheeks and blew back his brown hair. He was twenty-five years old, a squatty, dogged Civil War vet who fought for the blue and the grey, but had otherwise achieved nothing remarkable in his lifetime. In fact, Stanley's life to that point was notable only for its mediocrity. He had tried and been found wanting as a soldier, sailor, gold miner, son, and lover. Yet there seemed no limit to the endeavors he was willing to attempt, then abruptly discard, without noteworthy accomplishment. He did, however, possess a natural flair for writing. Stanley had already published several freelance newspaper pieces, and had vague plans to become a success through a career in journalism. At Stanley's feet lay a collection of logs and planks bound together into a flat-bottomed raft, drawing just eight inches of water. Beside him was his friend and fellow would-be journalist, William Harlow Cook. They had met in Black Hawk City, Colorado, the previous year. Stanley was working in a smelting plant, and sent Cook a congratulatory letter about a story the other man had written for a local paper. Cook was a meek individual, the perfect foil to Stanley's bluster. When Stanley made plans to travel from Colorado by rafting down the South Platte at flood stage, Cook didn't so much agree as follow timidly in his wake. It was of little consequence that the journey was potentially suicidal. What was important was that both could swim, for neither man had river rafting experience, and melting snow had engorged the otherwise lazy plat. Stanley and Cook planned on riding that freshly cut lumber for hundreds of miles down the ripping, snorting river until they reached an even broader and more swollen flow, the Missouri. The two freelance writers had had their fill of the West. They were off to points east, maybe all.